Part fourteen of The Secret of Everyday Things by Jean Henri Fabre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter forty. Little pests. The chief constituent of cheese, as we have already seen, footnote, see our humble helpers, end footnote, is casein, which is separated from the rest of the milk by the action of rennet. But casein alone would make very poor cheese, and therefore it is customary to add more or less cream to it, and thus to furnish a cheese of greater richness and savor. The amount of cream added determines in general the richness and palatability of the cheese, and thus innumerable grades and varieties of this article of food are offered for our selection, yet they all owe their origin to one substance, milk. Kept too long, as I have told you before, all cheeses, some earlier, others later, become moldy, first on the outside, then on the inside, the mold being at the outset of a yellowish-white, afterward blue or greenish, and finally brick-red. At the same time the substance of the cheese decays and acquires a repulsive odor and a flavor so acrid as to make the lips smart. Henceforth the cheese is nothing but a putrid mass which must be thrown away. Deterioration is more or less rapid according to the softness or hardness of the cheese, and its permeability by the air. To make cheese keep well, therefore, it must be dried thoroughly, and reduced to compactness by strong pressure. Certain varieties of Dutch cheese, remarkable for their durability, are so hard and compact that sometimes, before they can be eaten, they have to be broken up with a hammer, and softened by wrapping in linen soaked in white wine. But, hard though they are, these cheeses are valued for seasoning, for which purpose they are first reduced to powder on a grater, and they are also serviceable in the provisioning of ships for long voyages. Mold and decay are not the only enemies of cheese. There are also certain little creatures, mites and worms, that invade its substance and establish themselves there, defiling the cheese by their presence and gnawing away at it, little by little. The cheese mite, or Acarus domesticus, as it is called by the learned, is a tiny creature hardly visible to the naked eye, with a body all bristling with stiff hairs and supported by eight short legs. Burrowing with its pointed head into the soft cheese, it lives there in colonies of a membership past counting, protected by the rind and taking shelter in the crevices. Assembled in mass, these animalcules look like so much dust, though on closer inspection it is seen to be animate dust, moving and swarming, and resolvable into a prodigious number of extremely small lice. If these mites are allowed to multiply at their own sweet will, the cheese gradually crumbles to dust. To ward off their inroads, cheeses should be occasionally scrubbed with a stiff brush, and the shelves holding them washed with boiling water. Cheese already attacked should be first well brushed and then rubbed with oil, which kills the mites. A more energetic procedure consists in subjecting the cheese to the fumes of burning sulfur in a closed box or chest. The sulfurous gas kills the animalcules without in the least impairing the quality of the cheese. "'And what about the worms you spoke of?' asked Claire. "'They are even more to be feared than the mites. "'What could be more disgusting than a piece of cheese, "'promenading, so to speak, across one's plate, "'borne on the backs of these horrid creatures?' "'Sometimes they are so numerous,' remarked Marie, "'that the substance of the cheese seems changed into vermin. "'It must be the decay that turns the cheese into mites and worms.' "'No, indeed, my child. "'Never in all the world does decay engender vermin.' 
cheese mites and cheese worms come from eggs laid by other mites and by the flies into which the worms are finally changed just as caterpillars are changed into butterflies then the vermin that we see swarming in all sorts of decay does not really come from that decay surely not the decay feeds the vermin but never brings it into being it comes from eggs laid by various insects especially by flies that are attracted from a distance by the smell of decay thus cheese worms finally turn into flies of various kinds whose lifetime is spent in the open air often amid the flowers when the time comes for laying their eggs these flies guided as they are by the sense of smell know very well how to find our supplies of cheese there they deposit their eggs each of which becomes a little worm which later turns into a fly how about the worms we find in fruit asked jules do they come from eggs yes all worms wherever they may be found owe their origin to eggs laid by insects and never bear in mind are they produced directly by decay let me give you a few examples who is not familiar with the cherry worm the cherry itself may be a fine appearance plump dark purple bursting with juice just as you are about to put it to your lips you feel a certain softness near the stem and your suspicions are aroused you open the cherry pa a disgusting worm swims in the decaying pulp that is enough those fine cherries tempt you no more well that worm if left undisturbed will turn into a beautiful black fly the cherry ortalis with diaphanous wings crossed by four dark bands the insect lays its eggs on cherries still green one on each no sooner is it hatched than the worm bores a hole through the pulp and installs itself next to the stone this orifice is very small and more than that it soon closes up so that the fruit inhabited by the worm looks sound the worm's presence does not interfere with the growth and ripening of the cherry a fortunate circumstance for the worm which is thus allowed to gorge itself with the sweet juicy pulp when the cherry is ripe the worm is also fully developed after which it leaves the fruit and drops it to the ground where it digs itself in and waits for the next may when it will turn into a fly lay its eggs on the young cherries and die now i understand said marie how the worm gets into the cherry i had always supposed it came in some way from the decaying pulp of the fruit i will next show you continued uncle paul a picture of the insect that in its worm state eats nuts it is called the nut weevil with its long pointed beak it pierces a hole in the tender shell of the young fruit and at the bottom of this hole in contact with the nut meat it deposits an egg which in a few days hatches a tiny worm as this worm eats but very little the nut continues to grow and the nut meat ripens but the gnawing goes on sometime in august the stock of food comes to an end and the worm-eaten nut falls to the ground the weevil itself its jaws now robust bores a round hole in the empty shell and abandons its early home to burrow into the ground where its transformation takes place and the worm becomes a perfect insect i often find said emile under the hazelnut trees in the garden nuts that look all right at first only each one has a little hole in it and no meat inside the meat has been devoured by the nut weevil and the round hole is the door by which the creature makes its exit sometimes said claire when i crack nuts with my teeth i bite into something bitter and soft that replied her uncle is the worm of the nut weevil crushed by your teeth Pah, nasty thing she exclaimed and what about the worms we often find in apples and pears asked marie 
Those are what are commonly called appleworms, or in learned language, pyrolidei. The moth has wings in two pairs, the upper being of an ash gray marbled crosswise with brown and adorned at the wing tips with a large red spot, surrounded by a gold red band, the lower of a uniform brown. As soon as the fruit begins to form, the insect lays an egg in the blossom end of the apple or pear, either fruit being alike acceptable. The tiny worm that hatches out, no bigger than a hair, bores into the fruit and establishes itself near the seeds. The little orifice by which it entered soon heals over so that the apple or pear appears sound for some time. Meanwhile the worm goes on growing in the lap of plenty. It makes a hole communicating with the outside, to admit fresh air and ensure the ventilation essential to the sanitary condition of its abode, with all its encumbrances of rubbish and excrement. By this tunnel bored through the pulp of the fruit till the outside is reached, the worm both receives fresh air and from time to time ejects, in the form of reddish wormhole dust, the pulp gnawed and digested. Apples and pears thus infested do not cease to grow. On the contrary, they mature even earlier than the others, but it is a sickly maturity and hastens the fall of the fruit. The worm in the fallen apple or pear leaves its domicile by the exit already prepared and withdraws into a crevice in the tree's bark, or sometimes into the ground, where it fashions for itself a cocoon of silk mingled with bits of wood or dead leaves, and the next year it turns into a moth at the season that brings forth the young apples and pears in which are to be laid the eggs for a new generation of worms. Chapter 41. Flies. These examples, Uncle Paul resumed, which I could multiply indefinitely without finding a single exception, prove to you that all vermin swarming in decayed matter owes its origin to eggs laid by insects, flies, moths, butterflies, and beetles of various kinds. Life always springs from life, never from decay. All the same, Marie declared, there are lots of people that say rotting matter breeds worms. That is an error as old as the world, and even in our day it is widely disseminated, though much less so than in ancient times. Persons of the highest education used to regard it as beyond question that mud, dust, excrement, and other matters in decomposition would breed animal life, even rather large specimens, such as rats, frogs, eels, snakes, and many others. If the learned men of antiquity endorse in their works such gross errors, what must have been the beliefs of the uneducated? Didn't those learned men know, asked Claire, that frogs come from tadpoles hatched out of eggs laid by other frogs? They did not know it. They only had to look into the pond to find it out. They did not know how to look. In those old days, men reasoned a great deal too much, sometimes to the point of unreason, but seldom did they take it into their heads to examine things as they really are. Patient observation, mother of all our knowledge, was unknown to them. They said, That is it, without examining the matter, whereas in our day we examine before saying, That is it. By this reversal of method, science has, in scarcely a century, attained to a degree of power that astonishes us with its marvelous achievements. It is observation that has given us the means of protecting ourselves from the thunderbolt by using the lightning rod, of covering enormous distances in a short time with the help of steam, which propels the railway locomotive, and of transmitting thought instantly from one end of the world to the other with the electric telegraph. Truth is acquired through observation. Man does not invent it, but he has to seek it laboriously, and is fortunate if he finds it. For want of close observation, the ancients, 
on seeing a litter of young mice come out of some hole in the wall, attributed the procreation of these animals to the dust of the wall. If they saw a company of frogs leaping about on the muddy bank of a pond, it was enough to make them believe that frogs sprang from mud fermenting in the sun. And I, declared Emile, am sure that they are hatched out of eggs. From one of these eggs comes first a tadpole, which little by little loses its tail, gets four legs, and finally turns into a frog. That is something like the change of form of a caterpillar into a butterfly. You know what was unknown to a great many wise heads in olden times. If I know it, it is thanks to Uncle Paul, and those who think worms come out of decayed matter and frogs from mud apparently have no Uncle Paul. Alas, my child, how many there are that have none. By that I mean there are few who receive the thorough education that enables one to judge things from experience, observation, and sound reason. People trust the merest appearances and transmit their own premature conclusions. It is least troublesome and the quickest way. As you grow older, my dear children, you will learn how many foolish sayings gain currency in the world because people will not take the trouble to reflect and observe, observe with their own eyes. If one is but willing to learn, for example, that the worms in decaying matter come from eggs and not from the decay itself, all that is necessary is to have eyes and use them, for the simplest sort of experiment will decide the question, though it was centuries and centuries before anyone thought of it. We merely cover with gauze or a fine wire screen any food that is beginning to spoil, such as cheese on the point of going bad, or anything else of the sort. Attracted by the odor, flies soon come circling about these tainted substances, and even lay their eggs on the gauze at points nearest the decaying matter, which lies just out of their reach. Under these conditions, however far advanced the state of decomposition may be, no worms will make their appearance in the tainted food, because it has been kept where no eggs could be laid in it. But if the protecting gauze or wire screen is removed, the flies will lay, here and there, in the decaying substance, piles of little white eggs, and very soon there will be thousands of worms swarming amid the decomposing organic matter. By means of observations requiring rather more care, it is possible to catch in the very act the little insect that lays in the cherry, the egg from which comes the worm we all know so well. It has been ascertained that wormy fruit owes the inhabitants that devour it, not to decay as such, but to eggs deposited there by various insects. It has been discovered that lice do not come from flesh, nor flies from fermenting excrement, and also that frogs are not engendered by pond mud. In short, a thousand errors of this kind have been so completely refuted that there remains not the shadow of a doubt on the matter in which the smallest grub is brought into being. Wherever you find worms, caterpillars, insects, be assured that other insects have laid their eggs there. Always and everywhere life owes its existence to life. You open new views to us, uncle, said Marie, and they will rid us of ever so many false notions. I have been merely trying to show you the salutary part our reasoning faculties are called upon to play. It now remains for me to give you a lesson from established facts. Certain articles of food used by us, such as cheese and meat, especially game, are always in danger of falling prey to worms. This odious class of vermin owes its existence to flies which, according to their species, go in quest of animal flesh or cheese wherein to lay their eggs. Two species are already well known to you, for you often see these flies buzzing noisily on the window-pane. The first kind is dark blue, the second gray with reddish eyes. 
Both of them have much larger bodies than the ordinary fly, and both attack meat. As to cheese flies, I need only remind you of the worms too common to be unknown to you. These flies, these winged pests and audacious parasites, in them you behold the enemy that must be kept at a distance, and prevented from laying eggs in our provisions, if we wish to guard our larders from the invasion of vermin. Cut cheese should, accordingly, be kept under a bell-shaped wire screen, or, better, under a glass dome, which at the same time ensures its protection from flies and keeps it from drying up through prolonged exposure to the air. As to meat and game, which need a continual circulation and renewal of air, they should be hung in cages of fine wire netting, and every time the cage is opened care should be taken not to let in any of the blue flies that are usually lurking in the neighborhood. If the enemy were shut up with the provisions even for twenty-four hours, everything would be spoiled, such a multitude of eggs does the blue fly lay, and in so short a time. In a securely closed and carefully watched cage, game, however strong its flavor, will always be free from worms unless they were already in the game when it was placed in the wire cage. End of section 14